0: Honestly, that could be the entire podcast.
1: What, you talking about your teaching experience?
0: Yes, me talking about the teaching experience. Should we start a
1: new podcast for you?
0: What it's Teaching like.
1: in the 21st Century
0: with sure. Charisse Poon. It could just be about education, honestly, and what are the best ways to learn, actually, rather than, you know, best ways Make to Make it teach. a video game. I've actually been thinking about integrating creatively other virtual experiences or video games and things into my classes even though they don't have that in their description but to to not do it feels like to ignore like the time we live in
1: yeah exactly
0: this is making it up co-hosted by myself sharice poon and eugene can we come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in have questions about want to get each other's thoughts on Making It Up is produced by Maken, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals.
1: Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in.
0: We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things, and we appreciate you working through them with us.
1: Making it up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com/slash making for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, discounts on our online store, and more. Let's get into it.
0: It's interesting because I asked on Instagram for people's experiences with higher education, good and bad, you know, what they liked, what they didn't like. A couple of people responded to me really thoughtfully, and there were definitely criticisms. I think fair.
1: What were the criticisms?
0: Well, one criticism was that there is this institution-wide idea of like, this is what is acceptable and high quality and it's narrow.
1: Yeah, I would say that taste and efficacy are separate, but ideally they would be formed together. Yeah. So you can have shitty design that gets the point across or still achieve something. Well, then it wouldn't be shitty. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Like the taste wise. If
0: it's communicate, Yes, I think. So there's some people who have pointed out there's a problem when professors are very subjective. Yeah. And also a problem if institution wide, there's like one method of doing things that's more acceptable than others. Yeah, like
1: this is not a perfect example. But if McDonald's is the world's largest restaurant group, is that good food? Or are we, that's kind of what I'm getting at, right? Like, Interesting. Like, that's what I'm trying to say is that the size and the fact that you have a large base of, call it consumers or whatever, right?
0: But I mean, good is too vague, that, right? That's what I'm saying. Because like, it has to be like good by what measure?
1: But I think the ultimate POV from sort of the higher education crowd is that the hoops they've gone through, and I, I don't mean that in a negative sense, just like oh, the fact you Gone to school. You've done the research. You've um, written the dissertations. That in itself allows you a higher POV.
0: You know that's what, what I'm I, trying to get at. You know what I worry the most. We just had two friends in the booth who were asking me about teaching and asking me, you know, what am I concerned about, or what? Because it was my first teaching experience, and what I worry about is growing older and my mind becoming inflexible or, or that i am too judgmental and unwilling to accept other ways as being good
1: there's like a perfect quote in my piece today that will
0: excellent yeah because that, that's really one of my big worries yeah is that i feel right now as though i am open-minded and i i suppose just from like observation this i'm not trying to be ageist but just like there's a concern that the more you live you feel like your experiences
1: have value yeah have value and
0: therefore to like change your mind like discounts your past experiences but i think
1: that empathy in in itself allows you to have that level of open-mindedness you seek everyone else's actions are a reflection of something they see in front of them mm. and, and it's the information they've collected, albeit it could be imperfect because they don't have life experience, they might not have the same resources, but I have a POV that I, I would never position as it being necessarily more important. But I do understand like when I see something that I'm like don't, I don't agree with them, after I get over the initial shock of maybe how bad or how like misaligned something is, I'm like, "Oh, there's probably a thought process behind it. Asymmetrical. Information lends you to use your own experiences and your own perspective as the measuring stick for someone else's decisions mm. and I think that's ultimately one thing that it's hard to it you need to you need to have some reference point to even start to engage in anything so if you don't use your own experience as the starting off or the jumping off point, then like you won't even find an entry into the conversation or a way of understanding anything. shall we get into it
0: yeah let's do it i mean there's more to say, but like you said, this podcast remains as podcast, and for education thoughts, we will have to put that somewhere else. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. I was gonna
1: lead with a line, but I'm not gonna say it because it, it sounds it's a little inappropriate. I was like,
0: "What do you want to say?" I was like,
1: "I got a real big reading boner from this." I was like, "This is the perfect subject for me."
0: <laughs> it's not inappropriate, is it? I think is the metaphor of boner desexualized enough to be used I have no idea. Okay, well.
1: <laughs> Anyways,
0: email us with your feedback. Yeah.
1: All right, we're going to we're going to get a 1 star. <laughs> These guys are crude and crass.
0: You know, it's been 180 episodes. Time to let the hair down. You got a big reading boner for this article? <laughs> Tell us what it's about. All
1: right, let's get into it. All right, the topic is Why Is It So Hard to Be Rational? by Joshua Rothman. This topic to me just I think for, for many, in many ways was interesting because I, in this day and age, we are, what I personally think is a lack of rationality behind decisions, right?
0: I mean, if this is going to be opinion coming through, but you look at the vaccination numbers.
1: Yeah. And this is something to talk about too. I think there's a level of rationality that people want others to perceive them to have, right? Like, oh, he's like, you know, to be overly emotional in decision-making is not always seen as a.
0: I do think that there are some areas in life where it is okay to confess to being irrational such as romance
1: yes romance
0: which is sort of societally acceptable where you can kind of lose your mind over things yeah but otherwise yes I agree
1: yeah I mean I think that a lot of people now use rationality as a defense mechanism or like a, a guard in a way to defend kind of identity right like my identity in itself is so important that I need to defend it. And I think that gets in the way of a lot of decisions.
0: Mm. Does that make sense? You think people don't want to appear wishy-washy?
1: Or it's more like if I disagree with you, that's an attack on your identity.
0: Ah, right? I see. Because my, your beliefs are very important. They're armor and, are clad.
1: And everyone's beliefs are rock solid. They mm. want them to, to, perceive, to be perceived as rock solid.
0: Which is why so many conflicts arise. Correct. I'm on board.
1: All right. Um, So this article by Rothman uses the narrative to start of his friend Greg, not his real name, who they came through the ranks together. They kind of grew up together. And he used a few different examples of how they had seemingly similar but different points of view. And the reason why I say similar is because I think they both perceive themselves to be these rationalists, right, in the way they made decisions or had conversations. Yet. Rothman, relative to his friend Greg, had different outcomes. Mm. Right. So so early on in the piece, they discussed how healthcare should attribute costs and like healthcare in general. And I it's I less think
0: it was about whether doctors should take cost as a factor yes. when recommending a patient's prescribed course of action.
1: Correct. And while that's not as important though, the the actual reason why this came up as sort of a point of contention was that greg said that rothman's point of view was what he called the motivated reasoning where his experiences would then filter into the way he would create a stance right because his dad was a doctor and another example was how rothman and greg were both buying stereo equipment at one point and for rothman he took a very sort of like romantic notion of like what looked cool and had this je ne sais quoi, which is like you know, he, he couldn't quite pinpoint why he wanted it versus Greg's more methodical and utilitarian approach, which at the time was dismissed as being kind of boring. Right. Um, but then fast forward after Greg upgraded, he sold his old equipment to Rothman. who was like, oh, actually, this sounds better.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But I mean, I, I get that when you are, especially when buying consumer goods, you let yourself just be attracted to things. I don't. Okay.
1: But which is why this is something I was like, oh, man, this actually explains my life quite well. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: For Greg, he broke down his process as a never ending inspection of what he calls his thought process for faults, like a science fictional computer that had just become sentient. And I find that really interesting because it's this hybrid, right? Because when you think of computer, you think of it being super rational, super logical. And then obviously you throw in the element of sentience. Yeah, and I find that really, really interesting because it's what I deem to be the best of both worlds, right? Uh, and this kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning about this pandemic era we're in, right? And there have mm-hmm. been a lot of books on rationality that have been written, including Stephen Pinker's *Rationality: What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters*, published by Viking, and Julia Galef's *The Scout Mindset: Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't*, published by Portfolio. And according to Arnold Kling. He suggests that the barbarians sack the city and the carriers of the dying culture repair to the basements to write, which is why we have this outpouring of these types of books. So in in short, when the world is in disarray, it's the rationalists that come in and try to make sense of everything. Sure. Yeah. But there is a little bit of an issue that comes into play when you're overly reliant on rationalists. I think this also... Tipped into this broader sort of culture war in a way. Because I think rationalists often are seen as, thats the right way of putting it. It's like they, they often promote higher education, come from that, that perspective, right? Of higher education that is in some ways divisive. Because I think that in itself, we've seen that division being created.
0: Elitism?
1: That's the, probably the better word, right? It's the elitist nature of it. Although I've never looked at school as being elitist. But I guess it can be seen as such.
0: You're right. I mean, to perceive schooling as elitist is subjective.
1: Like education to me is not elitist, but I could see how it could fall within that domain.
0: I can see why some people perceive it as such. Yeah. Well, because of its relation in some parts of the world to money.
1: Yeah. I mean, in Canada, growing up in Canada, uh, going to a four-year university was generally accessible to most people
0: yeah right which will change how it's perceived exactly because it's affordable because it's accessible yeah i actually thought you were about to say that the issue with rationalists is that they may come across as being Mm, cold-blooded
1: this is not the argument they make but i could see how that could potentially come up right that's fine yeah so here's a quote that speaks to what i just mentioned there In a 2014 book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, Martin Grury, a CIA analyst turned libertarian social thinker, argued that the unmasking of allegedly pseudo-rational institutions had become the central drama of our age. People around the world, having concluded that the bigwigs in our colleges, newsrooms, and legislatures were better at appearing rational than at being so, had embraced a nihilist populism that sees all forms of public rationality as suspect. Mm. Does that make sense to you?
0: It does make sense to me.
1: Yeah. So does that, like, honestly, it is a little bit complex for me, but.
0: Sure, break it down.
1: I was actually going to ask you to break it down because you seem to understand it. Like the way I perceived it was what it means that while people are saying something, I think the reality of what they're executing on doesn't reflect that. And that's where the the sort of suspect nature of it comes into play.
0: Where we're at in this current time, this is my takeaway from the quote, is that where we're at in this current time, the public popular opinion is that people who throughout all this time have been in the position of being rational have just been pretending to be rational yeah without actually being rational so this leads to a backlash against all appearance of rationality whether it is well founded or not yeah it just has to have like the tone or the presentation of Rational thought and it will inspire backlash. Yeah. Negative feelings. That, that's yeah. It's like away.
1: inconsistencies, basically. Yeah. Because you do see that it's.
0: I mean, there are inconsistencies. I'm not saying that every person who's ever like presented themselves as rational, therefore was. I mean, but it's a shame. Because I s- think that people will just knee jerk reaction dismiss.
1: Like one thing that has happened a lot as of late are politics laying down the law and telling the general population, you need to adhere to these rules and then breaking them themselves, right? That's an example of it.
0: Well, also what's not in our favor is saying something is scientific or proven to be the case and then it winding up not to be the case, which we can't control. Science changes.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So this next part of the article goes into a lot of concepts that I, I personally found really interesting. Uh, One of the first ones discusses uh, this idea called metacognition, which is coined by neuroscientist Stephen Fleming and mentioned in his book, Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness, published by Basic Books. So what this means is that it's the ability to think about our own thinking. It's this fragile, beautiful, and frankly, bizarre feature of the human mind. Metacognition emerges early in life when we are still struggling to make our movements match our plans.
0: I'm super into the idea of education. Yeah, because it's the idea that you don't just participate in something, but you can reflect on your participation, which is actually a lot of education, is that you don't just do the thing, but you analyze the doing of it.
1: Yeah. And you're always thinking, like, how can we better? And that's one thing that I find really interesting about certain jobs that have a lot of call them reps. Cause I, in, in sports, like I want to get a lot of reps in, like I want to go through the motion a lot. Right. And when you have a lot of reps, what's nice about it is that you can tweak it, you know, day by day, you know, from one dish to another, I said dish, cause I kind of alluded to like restaurants are a good example of this. Like let's say Monday you have a new dish and it's prepared a certain way. Feedback from that evening pushes you to like increase the portion size. Okay. Now I've, now I've improved upon the output. So another concept they talk about is this illusion of fluency where we often stop looking at the process of doing something as we get good at it. So we can never actually measure if we're getting better at it or if there's any change. So they use really mundane examples like folding the laundry, which I I found interesting because like there's definitely this illusion of fluency, which I mean, how much better can you be at folding laundry, to be honest? Um, But I think... I see it also filtering into other parts of your life, like how you use software or well, my work.
0: mind first went to software, yeah, because you know it changed well, I'll just take a real example from my life, which is that like when I was younger as a designer, I learned Photoshop first. So when I first started doing web design, I did it in Photoshop because that's what I knew, and then sketch came out, and it was really popular, and it was painful to yeah. like learn it, but I, without knowing that it was called illusion of fluency, was aware that I must be under this illusion. Yeah. So I taught myself sketch and now there's Figma and there will be something else in two years or a year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's this personality called uh, Thomas Bayes, an 18th century mathematician and minister, and he's become a bit of a figurehead for rationalists for this framework of learning and adapting new info. So here's a quote from the piece. When new information comes in, you don't want to replace old information wholesale. Instead, you want to modify what you already know to an appropriate degree. The degree of modification depends both on your confidence in your pre-existing knowledge and on the value of the new data. Bayesian reasoners begin with what they call the prior, and that's in air quotes, the prior probability of something being true and then find out if they need to adjust it. What I like about it is like it's an iterative approach of learning and forming your base of foundation because experience basically is that layer. Like In this particular example, it's, Rooted a lot in science in a way, because they, they like to throw in probability. So if new information comes in that changes the probability of something, that is something you sort of like put in your back pocket and you're like, hey, you know what? This might eventually merge and like find its way into my daily life or my, my, my life in general.
0: I mean, you say it's based on science, but I do think people do this without calling it so much this. Well, what comes to mind is, you know how there are always articles about how to wake up better or how to organize your time or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And when people read those, this is what they're trying to do, right? It's new information. They have this old routine of doing things. They're unlikely to toss out their old routine and substitute the new one. They'll just take what works for them. But it's nice to know that. There's a whole framework over
1: yeah
0: what else did you find interesting
1: as I get to the end of the piece there were some other things that stood out one thing that is really important is that rationalists to your to what you mentioned actually this actually reintroduces the point you brought up of how rationalists could potentially layer on a very unemotional way of making decisions right and there's this one quote clearly we want people in power to be rational and yet the sense that rationalists are somehow unmoored from direct experience can make the idea of a rationalist with power unsettling. Would such a leader be adrift in a matrix of data more concerned with tending his map of reality than with the people contained in that reality? So that's exactly what you said, right? It's like, dude, you, you can set these, these laws in place or you know de- determine government spending, but if, if you don't walk the walk, you don't know who's going to be on the, on the other side of the receiving end of it, you may just fully miss the plot. Over the course of this whole thing, I kept thinking about like from a rationalist perspective How that impacts the work we create, the art we create, and how we work with one another, right? And I think this was actually really important because it goes back to your thing that you mentioned also about graphic design, right? Like, in theory, McDonald's, because it's been able to impact, and I say impact, just touch, right? Like, people have interacted with the brand or whatnot. Maybe they have good experience, bad experiences. They've done something there because they found a much larger baseline experience with a massive audience and that's something that i think rationalists might sometimes miss out on because there's an overly sterile way of looking at things and i i myself do that too like sometimes i try to remove emotion but i think there is a really important part of emotion in determining a direction not to say it's the only direction but it pushes you in a certain way Mm. right
0: well i mean i think that rationalism does lots of good and it's the idea that at an extreme rationalism to use i think an idiom turns people into numbers and there's a concern that if you were overly rationalist you try to convert human worth into something very measurable which unfortunately often comes down to economic benefit yeah. And that's the
1: easiest way for us to make sense of numbers in this world is often statistically driven as it leads into some sort of financial outcome.
0: And obviously that is concerning because yep. there are many people on earth who, well, I mean, my stance is that everyone is valuable regardless of their contribution to the country's GDP. But that's not a very, that is a non-measurable stance. Mm-hmm in a way that will work well with rationalist models of thinking. I think also people can be turned off by rational people in power because people like to feel connected to. And that's not um, necessarily something that can be data-driven, that you can't numbers create a (laughs) real connection with a human.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna give this last quote and then I'm gonna sum it up with what I think is like the the larger takeaway. Go for it. All right. Following through on our own conclusions is one challenge, but a rationalist must also be meta-rational, willing to hand over the thinking keys when something else is better informed or better trained. This too is harder than it sounds. Intellectually, we understand that our complex society requires a division of both practical and cognitive labor. We accept that our knowledge maps are limited not just by our smarts, but by our time and interests. So I think there's like almost these layers to this shit where it's like you yourself might aim to be more rational and to make better decisions. But at some point, if the rational framework is to exist, you might also realize that an overly rational approach might be detrimental to your decision-making because you understand in the real world That's not how it operates. I like that. Right? Like you almost have to tone it down because you're going to the extremes of like using rationality as how you make decisions. Great example, when you talk to a client and you're like, you know, these are my rules, man. Like if you, I know you only have this much budget, but I won't do it for anything less. But then other things might kick in that help you inform, which is why I think that frameworks exist only to be there for you to start a conversation and allow you some sort of foundation to begin the conversation to use that example. Like if you come to me as a charity and you want to do some work and you have no budget, there's a far different sort of framework that needs to go into that. Although the the foundation has been set like, Hey, you know what? Like this is what it is. Right. And I think that that in itself is probably one of the more interesting things that I've tried to learn is like when to be rigid and when to be flexible. And I think that, from a from a rationalist perspective maybe it's less required in certain industries but i think in industries where you're speaking with people people you may have never met working with different types of outcomes you actually need to be super switched on and know when to push and when to like pull back there's no there's actually no science behind it it's more like you have to address the situation even you yourself like there might be jobs you might not take because it doesn't match the budget, but hey, I haven't had a job in three months. Maybe well, it's I'll funny take it. That
0: you say there's no science to it because I think there is some science to it. Even the the choice in knowing when to be flexible or rigid. Actually, I would argue that the ideal version of rationality is an understanding of being flexible. Yeah, when you can use this framework, when you can use this way of thinking, when you need it accept new information and adjust the way you do things. Actually, if you very strictly 100% of the time adhere to this like rational framework, that in fact would be irrational because you are unwilling to change despite the circumstances. Correct. Which
1: is yeah, what I was saying, yeah. Yeah. I'll manage to said what you said again. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, this was really interesting to me cuz
0: personally illuminating.
1: Yeah, I you. mean, it helps me make sense of the way I think about a lot of things too and I was always wondering like am I doing it right? Is there like a way to explain this? And like, for me, I think for people that want to be rational, having a reason and understanding so they can explain something is actually one of the best things, right? Because you kind of want to make sense of the world. And if you can't make sense beyond just like a feeling or like what you think you think it is, but obviously this has been consolidated and probably put through some sort of scientific layer that then allows you to figure it out, which what I think is... I don't know if it's, if it's just me that wishes to see a more defined relationship, but I think that there's often, there's often been this division between art and commerce, you know, science and creativity where they need to be like separated. But I actually think when leveraged properly, they can be super synergistic, right? And it's kind of goes back to the push pull thing, like knowing when each has the ability to impact the other and make. The best possible thing.
0: I mean, that's a great segue to my subject.
1: Let's get into it.
0: The article I'm talking about this week is titled Worn Out, and it's written by Drew Austin. It was published in Real Life Mag. Earlier, Eugene asked me if I found this a little tricky to read, to understand. And I said no, but that's because I've been reading things that are much more difficult to understand, even not to, I'm not trying to big myself up, but just it depends what you're reading. And then your mind kind of shifts to accommodate to make sense of the structure of your yeah. writing. Austin essentially in this piece writes about the relationship between tech. And fashion, Mm -hmm. which is why I said yours was a good segue because he talks about how they have synergy in some ways, but also are not synergistic in other ways. And he opens by saying there are some things we can agree upon in terms of tech's impact on fashion, the rise of e-commerce, DTC, social media platforms, transforming how you market fashion and apparel and this is applies more than to just fashion but the internet has accelerated cultural information so information zips yeah. around the world yeah. super quick so all things are accelerated as a result he observed something about tech which i think is true in a general sense which is that the main leaders that we think of like icons of tech are anti fashion or at least do not seem at all to care about fashion, thinking Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Bill Gates.
1: All right. We gotta put an asterisk if so someone does care about fashion. You? No. Who? Jack from Twitter. Right. Someone, you know, if this was a visual podcast, you'd pull up the image of him question. and Rick Owens. You
0: know, you you predicted my next question. I was like, who in tech is noteworthy when it comes to fashion? You're ready there. Jack Dorsey. Yeah. All right. Well, the rest aren't, or at least they don't appear to care. They appear to be very much about like this utilitarian approach. Right.
1: You know what? Let's, let's actually like hold that thought. Cause I want to bring okay. it, reintroduce it afterwards. Okay. Like basically the type of company you set up, if you don't care about fashion versus one that you do care about fashion. However, there's not enough, there's not enough of a, a sample size. Cause I only have one.
0: That is an Interesting research question. Yeah. someone should go and run well, with that. I mean, okay, here, here's yeah. a quote. Here's a quote from the piece in regards to tech leaders. Such rigid and spare approaches to style seem intended to brand these leaders as existing outside time, absorbed in only the loftiest endeavors, with little thought to spare on more trivial forms of innovation. And I think it's one of them has said this. This idea of like having the uniform, so that therefore they can use their minds to think about more better important things than that fashion. The implication is that fashion is silly and... Frivolous, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Austin says, okay, actually he wants to talk about something a little bit more complicated than this so far. And it's that the tech attitude towards fashion is indicative of the world tech wants to create. And Austin calls it the, quotation marks, cultural condition. What is the kind of cultural condition that tech wants to create? And he says, this is where it gets a little complicated. He says that fashion, quotation, is a mode of display that enriches public space and a culture's shared meanings. So let's talk about that a little bit because it's a little bit.
1: Was something that he mentioned a few months ago. And I remember we had this very small discussion on our Discord about it. Oh, did we? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't remember this.
1: It was just a fleeting moment. It was like not a super in-depth convo.
0: Essentially, it's this idea which is intriguing to talk about. I don't have a very strong opinion necessarily, but is this idea that fashion happens in public space? In the sense that you can just walk around on the street for free, mm-hmm. right? In public areas and you can observe other people and therefore what they are wearing. Yeah. And that is an observation of Fashion, in itself, that this is a participation in fashion, and you're wearing clothing, or you're wearing something, and other people are perceiving you, and just by walking around in public spaces, and we're all wearing something and looking at each other, like that is fashion existing, yeah, in the world,
1: essentially. Oh, okay, I, I like that's actually a really interesting perspective because I don't disagree with it, and actually, it it in many ways is important to some of the theses, theses. That people have on, like the future of digital fashion, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. This is where it
0: goes because this digital. Is, it's so interesting. Yeah. So I, I accept I accept this because I do think this is how public space works. We're wearing clothes. Yeah. We're around each other. He takes it one step further to say, therefore, fashion is a public good that creates something positive in culture.
1: What's the positivity of the public aspect of it? Like, I agree that it's a sort of relationship that exists and uh, a dialogue that we're creating, right? Like, for example, today I was leaving my house. I uh, was in the elevator and I had a, call it a moment because there's a guy that rolled up like uh, probably like 65, 70. He had a, you know, just a button-up shirt, khakis or whatever tucked in and like basically a grandpa. And he had like a Vans off the wall hat. And, like, that's a moment based off of us just crossing paths, right? And like, was it, I guess the positivity of that was me like, oh, that's kind of funny, cool, whatever. I mean, that's a
0: perfect example. Example? Okay. Well, I'm going to quote again from him. And this quote begins with a quote from Hannah Arendt. To live together in the world means essentially that a world of things is between those who have it in common as a table is located between those who sit around it. Hannah Arendt wrote in The Human Condition. Clothing is among those common things, having a shared visibility that Arendt considered essential. Appearance, something that is being seen and heard by others as well as by ourselves, constitutes reality. In other words, fashion conveys not just specific trends or an individual's personal style, but a sense of the public itself, of shared space. Fashion implies a desire to see and be seen while affirming the need for public spaces and occasions where that seeing can occur. Essentially it's this what you said about the example of this grandpa with the off the wall hat is that you two meet in this fleeting moment of like a shared reality that you could you know Hannah's Heron Aaron's example is a dinner table essentially that you meet around this is a common thing that you now share that you could converse about if you wanted to you also don't have to converse about it you have You have formed a connection with this person, even if it is tenuous. And that's the positive thing that is created.
1: In some ways, this is an extension of a conversation that we've had around, let's say, grocery delivery, right? Where grocery delivery is removing that public space interaction where you and I are going to the grocery store or Uber, which has removed us from taking public transportation together, right?
0: Because there is an argument that just by sharing public space with one another, and seeing our points of differences and commonality increases our empathy for one another will affect the way we talk and behave and the decisions we made.
1: Yeah, I like that. Just because
0: we are increasingly aware of the fact that we inhabit the same space.
1: Because that is something that, for me, my perspective sometimes cloudies that. Mm. Like, for me, if I... I mean... I have a strong point of view on fashion because like that's technically what my my early career was built off of, right? Yeah. So for me, like
0: you also just have strong opinions.
1: Well, yeah, but like <laughs> if I if I see someone that I that I don't like their style, I'm like, that's offensive to me. Like that's why I was struggling to see the the positivity of it. But I think that you're kind of going one level deeper or even more foundational, where it's actually the positivity is the fact you you're able to utilize this as this jumping off point.
0: But actually, even your strong opinions about fashion where you see someone and think, oh, their taste offends me, that also indicates that there are people that you would more strongly identify with as a result of fashion if they share your taste. And that's still a benefit. So it doesn't mean you have to have like neutral taste in fashion to, you know, partake in this positivity. But where this goes in terms of tech is that I think. Well, I think we're pointing we're pointing right at it, which is that. Austin raises a criticism of tech being that tech is mainly interested in removing public spaces. Yeah. And he breaks this down in more steps than what I've just said. Essentially, he says that tech wants to capture incentives for themselves. And it's the logic of privatization. And the way fashion exists in the public space, as we've described it, doesn't Give tech space to financially benefit from it.
1: Yeah. That's actually like, you know, you know, why I had so much trouble with this. I think that I have had to develop such a defined definition of fashion that it prevented me from sort of like broadening how I looked at it.
0: Yeah. Fashion yeah. isn't just Rick Owens.
1: Well, it's not like I wear Rick Owens or that other stuff, but I'm, what I'm trying to get as, yeah, like no, I think that it was a,
0: it was a joke. Yeah. Um, In this definition, fashion is just wearing clothing.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Which we all do.
1: Yeah, like I think that privatization comment is so incredibly interesting. But I also think that as much as we want to push ourselves into digital fashion as this next chapter of fashion, my value around fashion was in many ways the... The public space discussion, but I never really recognized and I had the, f- the ability to kind of encapsulate and define it as cleanly as Austin does.
0: I think, you know, his concern about, he then goes on to talk about the metaverse and digital fashion and yeah. NFTs and loot boxes. And that's kind of the last quarter yeah, of this yeah. article, which we have talked about in many different ways. And his concern is not so much that It's not this romantic notion like, oh, people aren't going to talk to one another in public anymore. His concern is whether we are giving over every aspect of our lives for companies to benefit from. Mm -hmm. So is there a way for us, for fashion, for creators, brands, et cetera, to get into the digital space without giving up all the benefits to other companies i honestly think it's platform owners i
1: honestly think it's really tough because i have to kind of bring in the whole media fragmentation thing again because our ability to create niche communities that you want to be part of i want to be part of will already cut us off from the public interaction aspect of it so if you're really big into i don't know anime right and you know you spend a lot of your time in an anime group based in your city of Hong Kong, that will already create this intangible wall because obviously it doesn't really exist, but that's where you're going to spend your time. You're not going to have the ability to access what's going on in other parts of the world. And I say other parts, not like globally, but just like other parts of the internet. And I think that that in itself was not, it's not a design flaw so much as a behavioral outcome.
0: Did we talk about this on air last week or two weeks ago? You were asking me, off air, I believe, to take a scroll through my Twitter feed to see how many people had like apes.
1: Or avatars. Or like, avatars. Like basically profile picture avatars.
0: Yes, because you were telling me about this entire movement where people are purchasing... Actually, you can explain this so much better than yeah, me.
1: Yeah, so there's been a massive movement around NFTs that are avatar-based. And what people do is like obviously they buy an avatar... Uh, And then it becomes their digital identity. And then within that digital identity, there's also value that can be communicated. Because, for example, with CryptoPunks, which is one of the examples, you know, the price floor might be, I don't know what it's at right now, but it's probably like a few hundred thousand dollars.
0: Well, the use of those avatars in Twitter is actually a, well, good might be a strong word, but it's similar to a public space because Twitter is still open to everyone as mm-hmm, opposed to mm-hmm. just the use of those avatars in CryptoPunks, some kind of closed discord or closed yeah. forum yeah. space I mean, which would be as you said further I mean in some
1: in some ways like the way that we present ourselves and the where we go is also still a limitation like we are in right now a luxury shopping mall in Hong Kong like that in itself will prevent the types of people that will walk by so i think that it and on one hand, I I see it, but I think that what it is, it's more of a concentration of division, mm. right? Like Hong Kong is like notoriously famous where you take the subway and like there's a billionaire sitting next to you potentially, or at least like a multimillionaire, right?
0: Yeah. So to wrap up this piece, he talks about how there is increasingly a discussion of what it means to reimagine our Physical space in virtual places. Like, let's not say specifically it has to be a social media platform or even crypto related, but there are increasingly ways of replicating, I guess, that's my word, not his necessarily, is that we're recreating what happens in public virtually. And it's worth observing in what ways those. Recreations are exploited for monetization and to benefit who. But I think if besides that thought to ruminate on, what I also took from this piece was it kind of mild, I would say, because I just read it today, honestly, but a mild, like a resparking of interest in fashion as being just other people observing you and you observing other people. So it doesn't take any knowledge. You don't have to know a designer. No, no. Or buy expensive things. You just exist and observe.
1: And you just look and see people have made conscious, quote unquote, design decisions. I mean And what I mean by that is just like how they've gone and put out an outfit, right?
0: I was actually reading a book in prep for a class.
1: Damn, you're really getting your word count up, hey? That's going to be a new thing. People get their step count up. Now you're getting your word count up.
0: Yeah, so it's called Women in Clothes, and it's a book by Heidi Julevitz, Leanne Shapton, and Sheila Hetty. And I've owned it for a while. I've read it before. I was re-looking at it again to come up with some interesting exercises around archive and observation of what you do on a day-to-day basis. One of the exercises I was really interested in was a mapping of your closet or a mapping of what you wear regularly so there's an exercise well they have it as a map of your floor except i don't throw my clothes on the floor
1: yeah
0: (laughs) so it's like what clothes you have lying around and in what situation did that happen
1: a database of all my clothes
0: i love that but
1: i don't count how often i wear them but i
0: think that's the usage and the context of when you wore it is really particularly fascinating yeah. All right. We got to wrap up. We're gone over time. Thank you to the FMBG folks for letting us stay late.
1: Charisse was late. I was. Because she was orientating some college kids.
0: <laughs> Don't know how. I think they are worse oriented now. There's just too much information.
1: Do they dress like you? Did you dress like them?
0: We do dress similarly. Oh, man. They dress trendier. I'll report back. Of course, of course. I'll report back next week on the...
1: Maybe you should go shopping. Maybe you should ask the school for a a fashion budget.
0: I should ask the students where they buy their clothing and point me in those directions. Okay, good place to wrap things up. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com.
1: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon.
0: Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice.
1: And this is Making It Up.